It is such an honor to be with you this morning, uh, especially considering the remarkable summer series that you have been having so far. I have actually been watching with great envy the last few weeks as you've been hearing from some of my very favorite writers and speakers. If there ever was a prophetic voice that the church needed to heed in this time, it is Austin Channing Brown. Uh, I am always learning from her, have learned so much from her, and I don't think there was a book I was more expressed. So I'm very grateful for their lives and for their ministries. And as uh, Schaefer said, my name is Sarah Schwartz, and for the time being, Southern California is where I live and work. Uh, but home will always, always be the great state of Oregon, where I have been for the last few weeks, right? This, this, this humidity, people, why? <laughs> how? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Those are my two questions, why and how. Um, so Oregon is actually where I've been for the last few weeks, visiting my family, and I got on a plane yesterday in Portland to come be with you. And I'm always a little wary of speakers that claim to have had this experience right before they came to give a message that perfectly illustrated the, the heart of the sermon that they were about to give. I usually think like, okay, well maybe that happened, but it didn't happen right before you came to give this message. But I do have a, have a true story to tell you of what happened to me on my cab ride from Reagan International Airport to my hotel just yesterday um, late afternoon uh, that kind of blew me away and that fit in perfectly with the message that I have been working on. Um, so I hopped in a cab at Reagan. My alarm had gone off at 3 a.m. West Coast time, so I was very sleepy. I get in a cab and I give him the address of my hotel and we're mostly riding in silence and um, he's been listening, the, the driver, a middle-aged gentleman, um, has been listening to what I assume is a talk show, a radio show, in what I'm assuming is Arabic, but it could be a different language, I'm not sure. And out of the silence he says, oh, I'm so sorry about the program that I've been listening to. Um, I know it's really loud, but it's just really important. I was like, oh, you don't have to apologize to me, that's fine. Um, and he looks in the rearview mirror and makes really intent eye contact with me and he says, it's Muslim leaders talking about how we as Muslims should respond to acts of terror in recent days. Um, and, he, and he looks even harder at me and he goes, Islam is a religion of peace. Um, what these men do is not what God asks. And I wish I could capture both the fear and the pleading in his eyes as we were driving me, this white girl sitting in the back of his cab, like he was begging me to believe him. And early, and so all my feels are right there at the top, just waiting to be accessed. But also just because I was so moved by the fear that this man was conveying to me. And so I'm crying, I'm like, I believe you, I believe you. And then we're at my hotel, I'm like, okay, thanks for the ride. Uh, <laughs> But I couldn't stop thinking about it as I checked into my hotel about how I had spent the whole plane ride from Portland working on this message about how we as Jesus' followers should be people who engage in prophetic resistance, who speak hope and life when everyone else is speaking fear and death. And what a unique opportunity we have as Jesus' followers in this current social and political climate to choose love over fear and compassion over bigotry and, and understanding over um, marginalization. So I just had to share that with you this morning. I, 
it's not my usual notes that I have at the beginning of messages. Those usually read something like, open with joke to endear self to congregation. Um, but, you know, I, apparently we were just going to go for the jugular right out of the gate. So this morning, uh, what I am going to be preaching out of is my favorite gospel, the book of John. Uh, so if you, if you have your Bibles or if you have it on your phone, feel free to open to the book of John. Uh, don't be like me, because when anyone ever gives me permission to, be on my f- to read the Bible on my phone, I am always on Twitter. Um, but when scholars talk about the Gospels, if you've ever heard uh, people talk about the Gospels, you'll hear them talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic Gospels, because they describe Jesus' life and ministry from a similar point of view, some of them probably even using the same source material to write their accounts. So you have the synoptics, And then you have John, who also tells us the same story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but in a markedly different way. And I love John, because while the other Gospels are just as important and just as inspired, and the perspectives that those authors wrote from are, are invaluable, John reads like a book written by a man undone, like a man intoxicated by what he has encountered in Jesus of Nazareth. John is relaying true historical events, of course, but he writes about them like the assignment wasn't a book report, but poetry. It's been said of John that it's a book deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. The imagery and the truths it communicates are easily accessible to you and me thousands of years and miles from where they originally took place, but it's also a book with great depth that scholars have devoted their whole lives um, to exploring. And so I thought we might wade out a bit into a familiar and much-loved passage in John chapter 7. Now, when reading any book of Scripture, it's important to place in our mind what was the author's goals in writing this account, in writing this letter. And one of John's goals in writing his gospel was to demonstrate how Jesus fulfilled the Jewish festivals, and therefore on a broader scale how Jesus' life and ministry fulfilled. Come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. And so the way that John talks about Jesus is highlighting the ways that Jesus does just that. So if you would, go with me to John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 37 and read through 39. But to set the scene a little bit before we jump in, uh, in the chapter, chapter 7 more broadly, Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And as per usual, his teaching has caused a stir among the people, with some of the people saying that he was a good man, maybe even the promised Messiah, and others saying that he was a liar out to deceive the people. And the religious leaders watching all of this and wringing their hands in the background, trying to figure out the best way to silence him. So verse 37, I'm reading in the New International Version. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a gathering that was even more popular than Passover, because it was a celebration of and a plea for rain. 
rain that produced crops that sustained the community. The, the people's very lives depended on the rain. So if you're going to show up to any festival, it's going to be this one. But the Jewish people also understood that the Feast of Tabernacles was just as much about spiritual water as it was about physical water, and that it highlighted God's work in their people's past, the provision they were experiencing in the present, as well as pointed to that promised future that the prophets detailed. The feast looked to the past and that it thanked God for the rain that had kept their families alive, that had, that had gotten them there, as well as remembered God's miraculous provision of water in the desert when they exited Egypt, when God delivered them from slavery, from Pharaoh. Often you could see attendees shouting praise to represent the plants and the trees that they encountered during their years of desert wandering. The feast was a celebration of the present in that it thanked God for what they had harvested that year. And so on the other hand, they would often have fruit from that year's bounty, memorializing the past and thanking God for the present. And it looked towards their future as they offered pleas for continued rain and as they prayed for Israel's future. That promised second exodus their second deliverance from foreign oppression. Because you have to remember that Jesus is talking to a group of post-exilic Jews who are living in militarily, or Rome has militarily occupied them and they are suffering severely. And they are longing for deliverance, for that messianic age that the prophets spoke of. The age of abundance where God sent one would come and make things right. And this symbolic use of water would not have been foreign to Jesus' audience. As the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, it frequently uses water as a symbol to talk about joy, blessing, or the giving of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Jeremiah, God himself is described as the spring of living water. Isaiah 12 says that with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The psalmist cry out, my soul thirsts for you. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. And so during this week-long festival, the people would celebrate well into the night. And come the morning, the priests would lead a procession to draw water from a nearby pool, and they would bring it back to the temple and circle the altar and pour it out as a morning sacrifice. The Mishnah, the Jewish oral tradition, described this as an exceptionally joyous time, saying that he who has never seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. The priests would then read from Ezekiel 47, where found in the prophet's vision of Jerusalem's restoration after exile, this time that the people were looking forward to with great hope, Ezekiel describes a river flowing from the temple. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12 reads, The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me to the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then let me, led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. 
He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked, son of man, do you see this? He then led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the eastern region and goes down into Araba, where it enters into the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything lives. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Galim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel tells us that the water flowing from the temple will grow deeper and deeper and will eventually make its way to the Dead Sea. And what you and I may not understand at an initial reading of 21st century readers is that there's 18 miles. And that 18 miles is not prime real estate. It is uninhabited desert. Barren, lifeless, seemingly God-forsaken wilderness where some scholars speculate Jesus was tempted. But Ezekiel says that one day, water is going to flow from Yahweh's temple, flooding that lifeless desert. And when it reaches the Dead Sea, a body of water with such a high salt concentration that the only thing that can survive in it is one very specific type of algae, that the water from the temple will make it fresh. People will fish in it and fruit trees will grow on its banks, not bearing fruit once a year, but once a month. And the fruit will serve as food and its leaves for healing. And wherever the water goes, everything lives. And so it's on the seventh day, the pinnacle of this joyous water celebration, that the priests circle the altar with the water offering, not once, but seven times. And it's then that Jesus cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus at the high point of the Feast of Tabernacles, offers himself as its fulfillment. Looking for water, looking to be made right with the Almighty, looking for the provision and compassion and promises of God, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus declares himself the source of what the temple seeks, as the grounds upon which people could meet and be made right with God, as the one who could satisfy their thirst. Here stands the agent by which dead things become alive, 
the fountain of water that makes streams in the desert and causes life to spring up in places that had once been reigned by death. Jesus' invitation initiates its fulfillment. And the invitation to come and drink is the climax to a series of water references, not only in the Old Testament, but in John's gospel specifically. Water turned to wine at the wedding in Cana. The water of new birth Jesus describes to Nicodemus. The living water offered to the Samaritan woman at the well. The healing of the man by the pool and Jesus' calming of the waters during the storm. All of these have revealed Jesus as God's agent of life and life abundant. So in verse 37, Jesus invites people to himself to have their thirst satisfied, but, but in 38 and 39, he continues, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus doesn't just mic drop and walk away after he says, come to me and drink, but moves to the implications that this has for his followers and the rivers of living water that will flow from them. And unlike the people listening on the temple steps that day, you and I are privy to the ways that the New Testament would then go on to, describe, to use the imagery of the temple to describe Jesus' followers. For instance, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. 1 Peter 2.5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we follow the story of redemption and what the New Testament has to say about believers as temples of the Holy Spirit, who now are the agents by which dead things become alive? Any, any guesses? We are. Jesus says, I will quench your thirst and I will make you a quencher of thirst. You are now Christ's agent by which dead things become alive, a temple of, the, of his work in the world, acting on behalf of the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which is not as though it were. As N.T. Wright says, those in whom the Spirit comes to live are God's new temple. They are individually and corporately places where heaven and earth meet. It is only July, almost August, but 2016 has already been a tremendously difficult and painful year for so many here in our country and in the world over. I saw someone write something online the other day that said, this year has been like a Game of Thrones episode gone awry. <laughs> and we are all just crossing our fingers, hoping for a plot twist and a happy ending. And too often, 
as Jesus' followers, instead of being conduits of hope and new life, instead of moving towards those desperate and dry places in need of water, instead of being sites where heaven and earth meet, we join the chorus, sometimes lead the chorus, of those predicting doom and speaking fear and villainizing whatever group we have decided will serve well as our scapegoat that week. We declare the other that we are supposed to love and serve as the reason for all of this tragedy and unrest, failing to look inward and repent of our own complicity with systems of death and destruction present the world over. We join the smug chorus of, well, everything's going to hell. What are you going to do? Our call is not to join that chorus of death, but to prophesy that better way of radical love, justice, and shalom, as if the kingdom of God was already among us because it is. It may not be here in its totality, but it is very much here, and we best live as if we were already its citizens. Choosing redemption and justice and righteousness in every sphere of our lives, filled to the brim with a water so strong that as Ezekiel says, wherever it goes, everything lives. We must live in first. The poor are blessed. The widow, the orphan, and the refugee are met with open arms and full tables where the marginalized and mistreated find justice and safety. For as James Cone says, Jesus himself has defined humanity's liberation in the context of what happens to these. We must not meet all that is broken and evil in our world with complicit silence, but with the living water of prophetic resistance. As Sarah Bessie writes, It's a resistance of the false and broken to embrace and practice the true and the whole. We are prophesying with our lives. In the face of poverty, we practice generosity. In the face of ugliness, we practice beauty. In the face of injustice, we practice justice and mercy. In the rhetoric of fear, we declare, be not afraid. In the face of racism, we practice reconciliation. In the face of despair, we practice hope. In the face of ignorance, we practice wisdom and knowledge. We name it, we aren't afraid of it. And then while the not yet looks on in disbelief, we set to work putting things as they are and as they will be. ...highlights Jesus' relationship to the Father often describing Jesus as the sent one. As one commentator puts it, Jesus' mission in John's gospel is described as a unique expression of the Father's love for the world. In John's gospel, Jesus uses a Greek verb referring to the Father who sent me no fewer than 24 times. In another 17 passages, the verb is focused instead on Jesus as the one who is sent. The verb invests Jesus' acts with the full authority of the Father because he seems to do only what the Father wills. And it's in John's gospel that you'll hear Jesus saying things like, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Or you'll hear him pray, Father, may, may they be one as you and I are one. Or after his resurrection in the upper room, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. 
the last one is a particular favorite of mine because if I had been there, I would have been the disciple with her hand up in the back being like, can we back burner that for a second? Because I have some more immediate questions about how you just walked through a wall, but I wasn't there and that's probably best. Jesus walked in all of the authority and power of the Father who sent him. And now Jesus uses that as the paradigm by which to explain to us how he is now sending us. As recipients of the Holy Spirit, we have been charged with the task of bringing life to dead places. Not by the power of our own good intentions, but with all of the redemptive power of a God who himself is love. And when I read John 7, I always think of the opening scene of It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart is walking uh, Mary home, and they stop, and they look up at the sky, and there's the moon. And he says, what do you want, Mary? Do you want the moon? And he goes on to say how he'll lasso it, and how she can swallow it, and it'll dissolve, and it'll come out the tips of her fingers and her hair and her eyelashes. The glory of God his love, his redemptive agency, his ability to make things alive now resides in you, not in part, but in full. And it's coming out of the tips of your fingers wherever you go. Even, or perhaps especially, in circumstances that seem beyond hope. That seem like the desert between the temple and the Dead Sea. Places where you yourself may have said, there's no way that life could spring up there. There's no way that that person could change. No way that this situation could be redeemed or that this injustice could be made right. No way that this pain could ever heal. And then the kingdom of God arrives and does the impossible. Not because the pain isn't deep or the situation isn't dire, but because his redemptive power is that strong. The kingdom of God arrives and the desert turns into a river. The dead sea becomes fresh. Trees spring up and bear fruit in once was hard and lifeless ground. And so whatever is in you this morning that is dry and brittle, perhaps cracked and bleeding, desperate for living water, we say, come Lord Jesus, quencher of thirst, source of life. And whatever you have given up hope of being made well, things that you've written off as too damaged or broken to ever be beautiful again, whatever you have stopped praying for. We say, come Lord Jesus, quencher of thirst. And whatever is in our lives, individually and collectively, things that we need to move towards and make right, we say, come Lord Jesus, make us quenchers of thirst. Let us be fountains of your living water. May the water in us be of the kind that wherever we go, everything lives. Let's pray and we'll invite the worship team back up.
as many saints have prayed before us from the Book of Common Prayer. Lord, you have conquered death and triumphed over evil. There is nothing left for us to fear. Put us to work on this earth, striving for the kingdom in everything we do. Let us die to ourselves each day that we might find ourselves made new in you. Amen.